Hello, I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay Podcast. On this podcast, rather than looking at movies in terms of two thumbs up, two thumbs down, loved it or hated it, we look at them in terms of what we can learn from them as screenwriters. We look at good movies, bad movies, movies that we loved, and movies that we hated. This podcast is provided totally free with no outside advertising, so if you enjoy it, please make sure to subscribe on iTunes and write us a review. You can also find a transcript of this podcast on our website, writeyourscreenplay.com. This week, we're going to be talking about Don't Breathe, the new horror thriller by Fede Alvarez. I think Don't Breathe is a particularly interesting film for independent filmmakers to look at. Um, Not because it's breaking the rules or reinventing the wheel. The truth of the matter is... Don't Breathe is a pretty standard Monster in the House movie. It's a very well-executed Monster in the House movie, but at the end of the day, it's another Monster in the House movie. The only difference is that the monster in this house happens to be a blind man. And the kind of fun, ironic twist of the character who seems to be the weakest actually turning out to be the most dangerous. So Don't Breathe is not reinventing the wheel. But what it is doing is showing a really interesting template for independent filmmakers about how to make a very low-budget movie with a potential very high return. Don't Breathe was shot on a $9.9 million budget, and it has grossed almost $150 million so far. I think just about anybody would be happy with that return on investment. Does this mean that you should run out tomorrow and write a horror thriller? Absolutely not. But it does mean that you can take some of the lessons of Don't Breathe and apply them to your own writing in order to get the most bang for your buck as an independent filmmaker. One of the very exciting things about being an independent filmmaker today is that we have access in a way that has never existed before. Back in the day, you used to have to shoot on film. But today, pretty much anyone with an iPhone can shoot a movie on shockingly low budgets. We have resources like Kickstarter, Indiegogo, Seed and Spark that we can use to raise money. And not only money, but also to raise audience awareness. We have film festivals where our films can be shown and picked up in market. And most importantly, we have a lot of new distributors who are hungry for content, not only in features, but even more strongly in television. And we're starting to see a pipeline, for example, with ITV Fest, where film festivals are starting to feed content to those distributors, distributors like Amazon, Netflix, and thousands of new kids on the block all trying to to get in on a piece of that market. So it's a very exciting time to be a filmmaker because we have a hungry market, we have access, we have control. We just need to write the kind of scripts that we can make ourselves. And this begins with learning how to contain your screenplay. Oftentimes, independent filmmakers feel like they have the most freedom. They feel like, oh, don't worry, I'll figure it out on set, or we'll rehearse it with the actors and improv it, or I'll get to the location, I'll figure out what I want it to look like. But the truth of the matter is, when you're making an independent film, when you're making a low-budget film, you have less resources, and less resources means that you need more time in pre-production. You need more planning. You need a greater sense of exactly what 
you need. So often I hear independent filmmakers talking about, oh, it's fine, I'm just going to shoot 10 pages a day. When you realize that huge budget movies don't shoot anywhere near that number, you realize that every moment that you spend working on your script, developing your script, developing your pre-production, storyboarding, knowing exactly what you need at every moment is going to serve you. So as an independent filmmaker, don't think you're going to fix it in post. You don't have the money to fix it in post. In fact, there's a whole class of film investors who wait for great little independent films to run out of money in post-production so that they can swoop in and basically get a great movie for very little investment. You don't want to fall prey to that kind of predator. You don't want to need that money at the end. You want to you want to build your script and build your production in a way that you know you can get what you need. And this begins with a couple of concepts. The first thing is every hour that you spend working on your script is probably going to save you 20 hours when it comes to production. Knowing exactly what each line means, knowing what each character wants at each moment, knowing what each moment is going to look like. Thinking of your script as a blueprint for your director, even if that director is you, is going to save you so much money and so much time in production. This doesn't mean you're going to shoot everything exactly the way you wrote it. That's absolutely impossible. It, what it does mean is that when a problem comes up, you're going to have one path that you already know through the forest so that when you have to start making hard decisions, making hard cuts because you're running late or lost a location, you're going to be able to see exactly how it affects the script. Invest your time in the screenplay if you want to write it yourself. Um, but in order to invest that time, you also need to understand what's really important. What are the places where you're going to get a lot of bang for your buck? And what are the places where you're not? And there are a lot of ways in which Don't Breathe can be seen as a model about how to think about screenwriting when you want to make a low-budget movie. Number one, Don't Breathe has very few locations. Every time you add a location to your film, you are adding money to your budget. And you're not adding a little bit of money. You're adding a lot of money. Every time you have a location, you need to transport people to that location. You need location scouts to find that location. You need to light that location. You need to break down that location. You need to clean up that location. You need insurance for that location. There are so many things that you need every time you have a location. And if you think about Don't Breathe, you'll realize that for the most part, it's shot in a dilapidated old house, and it's shot on a dilapidated Detroit street. And by limiting the locations to basically these two places, the filmmakers are able to get a tremendous amount of bang for their buck. They're able to make a movie on $10 million that looks like it was shot on 50. Um, so one of the first steps that you should take as an independent filmmaker is to think about what are the super cool locations that I already have access to? Think about that first shot in Don't Breathe. And if you haven't seen it, it won't be much of a spoiler to you. The first shot we see is this cracked street on this completely dilapidated block in Detroit. And we're watching this tall old man, played by Stephen Lang, dragging this young woman by her hair down the street. Now, first off, that is just a great first image for a horror movie. 
It sets the entire world and the entire threat of the piece. So we start with this super cool image. And think about how great that shot is. First off, it's shot in natural light. You don't have to light it. It's shot on an abandoned street. Now, probably they, this is a $10 million movie. They probably did shut down traffic. But the truth is, as an independent filmmaker, you could gorilla the crap out of that. And think about what that first shot does for the production design of this piece. It makes a piece not feel like a little independent movie that didn't have enough money. It makes it feel like the epic scope of a Hollywood film. And so part of being an independent filmmaker is thinking about how do you shock the expectations of your audience? We're used to seeing independent films that are all talking that are all about close shots on the characters' faces because those shots are cheap to get. But if you can think about what is the visual spectacle of your piece, you can shock the expectations of your audience and you can get them seeing dollar signs, seeing trailer moments, seeing stuff, visual images that are gonna get butts in seats for your movie. So you can see, we often talk about the idea that the first shot of your movie is really where you make the sale. The first shot of your movie, the first image of your movie, is basically telling the producer, the reader, the director, the star, am I going to skim this or am I going to really read it? You want to knock their socks off from the very beginning. And especially in the world of independent film, where we're so used to watching things that don't look like they're fully cooked, If you start with an image that knocks their socks off, that makes an audience go, how did they get that? You are priming the audience to be blown away by your story. I'll tell you where I learned this from. Many years ago, I used to direct off-off Broadway theater. And the thing that sucks about directing off-off Broadway theater is that most of the people who come to these little shows are not actually coming to be entertained. They're coming to support their friends. They're coming with a feeling of, oh, okay, I gotta go support Jenny's show. As opposed to coming with the expectation that, oh my God, I'm gonna go see something awesome. And when you have an audience like that, you have an audience that's already primed not to like it. Just like when you show an independent film to a producer or as a script of a film to an investor, you have an audience that's already primed to think, oh, there's not gonna be any money here. So what I used to do, I used to spend a large portion of my budget on set. Uh, And one of the cool things about off-off-Broadway theater is there's never a curtain. These little black box theaters don't have a curtain. And so what most productions, as you come and file in, what you see are a couple of tables and chairs doubling as props. This really rudimentary, bare-bones set that basically screams at the audience, we didn't have enough money to do this right. So what I would do is I would always set aside, even if I was working only on like a $15,000, $20,000 production, which is a super low budget theater production, I would set aside about a quarter of my budget for set. That's a lot more than most of these productions spent. And what I would do is I would build a set. I had a wonderful designer who was great at working low budget. And I would build a set set that was shockingly beautiful. I would build a set that looked like it should belong on a Broadway stage. I'm not talking about hydraulics or anything like that, but the facade of that set. So that as the audience was sitting down, they would be looking at that set and going, oh my God, I didn't expect that so that I could shift their expectations from coming to support to coming to be entertained. 
The first image of your movie, and in fact the locations of your movie, the visual spectacle of your movie, can do that from the very first page to your viewer, to your reader, to your investor, to your star. It could say, yes, this is going to be a low-budget movie, but this is going to be a badass low-budget movie. This is going to be a low-budget movie that can have an extraordinary trailer. This is going to be a low-budget movie with beautiful production value. So the first step of doing this is, is asking yourself, what do I already have access to? Not what can I get away with, but what do I have access to that's already really cool? That's not going to cost me a lot of money. What are the locations? Who's my family member who owns that crazy bar? Who's my family member who has that weird old house? What is the beautiful exterior location at my summer home in Missouri? You want to think about the locations that you already have access to, that you don't need anybody's help getting into. The ones that you can get as a favor. The ones you can get for free. You want to think about what are the visually spectacular locations that I can build around. And then you want to keep coming back to them. And once you've identified those locations that you already have access to, you want to ask yourself, how do I squeeze every last bit of value out of them? And there are so many examples of films that did a great job of this. Um, particularly in the horror genre, we have movies like Saw, which is shot entirely in one really creepy cement room. We have a movie like Bronson, um, the movie that, that kind of catapulted Tom Hardy to fame that's shot almost entirely on one soundstage. Using what you have access to doesn't mean limiting yourself. It means asking yourself, how am I going to squeeze every last bit of value out of that location? How am I going to get every last bit of coolness out of that location? So if we think about Don't Breathe, you could think about these important locations and how we keep coming back to it. So we have that street. We have that street is used first in the image of the body being dragged down the street. That street is used again when that car is parked there. You can think of that incredibly low budget scare they get simply by shooting through the car window as that Rottweiler jumps up on the window. And you can think about how they then come back to the car. And you can think about how they then come back to that car. Not only in a chase sequence kind of way, but also in a structural way. And I think this is really interesting. Early on in the movie, basically, we know very little about these characters. The one thing we do know about Rocky, played by Jane Levy, is that when she was young, her abusive mother used to lock her in the trunk of her car. And that this was a horrifying experience for her. But that one day, a little ladybug flew in there through a hole, and it made her feel safe. So we have that one little bit of exposition. And then we have this one location, an empty street, where this car is parked. So we have the location of this dilapidated old car on this dilapidated street. And it costs very little money to get a car like that. And it looks extraordinary in the film. We lock in that location of that street first with the body being dragged across the street. We come back to it when the car is parked. We have a whole sequence in the house, which we'll talk about later. But then that sequence leads to a chase sequence back out to the car. And what happens is we come back to the car in a different way. So the first time we come to the car, it's basically this stereotypical jump scare, right? We've seen it a million times. We've seen it with cats. We've seen it with dogs. It happens in almost every horror movie. That oh, startle moment where we think we're safe and something startles us. So that's the first experience we have. And the dog then leads her to see the blind man. And seeing the blind man then leads to the plan about how we're going to drug the dog and we're going to rob the house. 
even while he's in there. Because after all, he's blind. What's he going to do? And so this is where we begin. And of course, we begin with characters who are doing bad things for good reasons. So yes, she is robbing houses, but she is robbing houses because she wants to save her family. She wants to save her brother and sister from the horrific abuse that her parents are responsible for. She wants to flee to California where they can have a good life together. And she spends the whole movie pursuing that money. Basically refusing to turn back, she must have the money. Multiple times over the course of the story, she has an opportunity to escape. For them all to escape without anyone getting hurt. But she chooses instead to pursue the money. So we see this crazy chase sequence play out inside the house. And we'll talk about the structure of that later. But the important thing is that inside the house, the person that they think is weak turns out to be strong. And his lack of sight and ability to know his way around in the dark turns out to be much more deadly than their ability to use their eyes. And there's a wonderful moment where she runs outside back onto that terrible street and screams at him, you're no good out here. You're useless out here. And of course, that's when he sets the dog loose on her. And we have this fabulous chase sequence through this street. Once again, back to that same exact location. And where did that chase sequence lead her? It leads her back to the car. And this time it's not a jump scare. This time it is a life and death fight against this dog. In the process of trying to escape, she flings herself into the car, losing the bag of money, only to realize that there are no keys. And now she has the dog stalking her. She cannot get out of the car. She cannot get to the money. And in order to finally overcome the dog, she has to go back into that trunk. Now, the execution of that in this film is not what it could be. The emotional execution is not what it could be. Because we don't feel the terror of her going into that trunk. We're not given the sense that this character you know, has promised herself that this will never happen to her again. We're not feeling fully the claustrophobia. So we, we kind of lose the emotional impact of that. In the same way, as we'll talk about later, we also lose a little bit of the symbolic value of the money. But structurally, it's a great example of how you take a street and a car and you use them again and again and again with different value in order to create a structure for the movie that relates to the problem of the main character. In other words, you have a car, so you use the car. When you need that story that humanizes the character, you use an object that already exists that you already know you can shoot. And then you start playing with it in different ways. So the next image we have is the image of the basement and that door on the outside of the basement. When they first try to break into that house, that door is locked from the inside. And later when they're trying to escape from the blind man, they run through the basement in the light, trying to get to that door. And just when they're about to escape through that hatch door, they see another spectacular set, another spectacular location that's done in a super low budget way. They see, and just uh, as a warning, there is a spoiler ahead. They see the padded area where the blind man's hostage is being held in this crazy locked up apparatus. So this is another example of location. We have a wonderful chase sequence in the light. They are about to escape. They divert from their plan to save this girl who's being held prisoner. And they go back to that same door to get out. 
And of course, uh, as you know, if you've seen the movie, that does not go exactly well. Which leads us back to the same location again. Because we had the chase sequence in the light, now we have the other side of the chase sequence in the dark. So you can see, once again, we're reusing the location. And that location gets reused a third time because at the low point of her journey, Rocky is going to end up locked up in that exact same apparatus, taken hostage just the way the woman she tried to save was taken hostage. When you're working on an independent film, it doesn't mean that your independent film needs to look ugly. It means that your independent film needs to be shot in a contained way. You're not looking for locations that you happen to have. You're looking for locations you happen to have that either already look awesome or could be made to look awesome with a little bit of work. Then what you are doing is you are squeezing out all the value you possibly can out of each location. I like to think of this as a game of go fish, which is that as soon as you create a location in your script, it becomes like a card on the table. And before you make up a new location, you always want to look at the cards on your table and say, is there a way I could use an existing location instead? And what's cool about this is not only does it create a sense of containment in the cost of your script, it also imbues those locations with value. If you think of a place where you used to vacation as a kid, if you had a vacation home, the first time you went there, it was new and cool. But as you went back again and again and again, it started to get imbued with emotional value. It started to become a structural part of your life. We used to have this beautiful home that had been in my stepmother's family for many, many hundreds of years. And it was made out of solid rock. It was a beautiful, beautiful place up in northern New Jersey. And the whole family used to vacation there. It didn't have running water. It had a water pump. It had an outhouse. And it had been in her family since the 1800s. One of her uncles inherited it, and he ended up selling it. And I remember going back up there and seeing the aluminum siding that they had put on the house and how that affected me emotionally, the feeling of loss and change. And, and so you can think the same way of the locations in your script, that every time we go back to these locations, it imbues them with value, it imbues them with meaning, and it actually becomes a structural part of your storytelling so that rather than thinking of it as limiting, you can think of it as structural. You can think of it as a creative process of finding the places that really matter to your character and that are going to look cool when you shoot them in your movie. And this is, by the way, true even if you're shooting a $200 million movie. Even if you're shooting a huge budget movie. The difference is in a huge budget movie, you can just think, what is the coolest location where I can shoot this? And no matter what the cost, they're going to get it. Whereas when you're shooting a low, low budget movie, you have to think about what are the cool locations I have access to? What are the cool locations I can get cheap? If there's one or two special locations that I'm going to spend my money on, how do I get the most value out of that? You don't want to spend all that money on a location and not get every bit of value out of it. If you buy the most beautiful pair of new shoes, you don't want to leave them in your closet. You want to wear them again and again. So. The first thing we want to think about is limiting locations. The next thing we want to think about is limiting characters, limiting the number of characters. And if you think about Don't Breathe, Don't Breathe is essentially told with a cast of three characters. There is Rocky, the girl from the troubled home who's pulling off these crimes because she wants to save her brother and sister and move to California. 
there is Alex, the sweet boy who loves her, who's doing the wrong thing out of his love for this girl who doesn't love him back. And there's the blind man, played by Stephen Lang. And these three characters are really it. Yes, there's Rocky's boyfriend, Money, who's in the script for about the first 10 minutes and who we can all smell the stink of death on (laughs) if we've ever watched a horror movie from the moment that we meet him. And yes, there is the girl who is trapped in the basement. But if you've seen the movie, you know how long she lasts. The structure of the film is centered around these three characters only. And by centering around those three characters, we're able to get to know them pretty well. It's hard to get to know characters in action movies. It's hard to care about them. The truth of the matter is, even the third character, even the character of Alex, is really barely developed. He's uh, kind of straight from stock footage, right? He's, we've seen this character a million times, this sweet, slightly nerdy kid who's helping the girl because he wants to be with her. Probably the best thing that that character does is get killed. And the reason I say that is because we expect them to be together. The truth is we don't even really fully have three characters developed. We really have two. And the reason that that works is because most of this movie is going to be spent running. In fact, if you want to break this movie down into seven acts, it's really just seven locations and seven obstacles as they try to escape this homicidal blind man, this monster in the house. So the more characters you have, first off, the more expensive your script becomes because the more actors you have to pay, the more mouths you have to feed, the more people you have to wrangle. But also, the less time we get to get to know any of these characters, and especially if you're doing a genre movie, an action movie, a thriller, a horror movie, we're going to be spending a lot of time running. We're going to be spending a lot of time in action sequences, and if we're spending a lot of time in action sequences, it means we have less time for character-driven stuff. And that means the more focused you can be on the most minimal cast, the better your movie's going to turn out. When you're building the structure of your movie, you can think of locations as a game of Go Fish, But you can also think of your characters as a game of Go Fish. Before you create a new character, you can ask yourself, can I play this out with the characters I already have? Can I make this happen with the characters who already exist? Can I use this moment to expose another piece of my character's personality? And one of the reasons that this movie succeeds is because of the characterization of the blind man and the characterization of Rocky. These two characters are really the saving grace of a script that otherwise is pretty darn thin. What do I mean by that? We've seen a million Monster in the House movies, and we've seen them with a lot scarier monsters and a lot more gore. We've seen Alien, which is probably the quintessential Monster in the House movie. We've seen Alien. We've seen The Shining. We have seen terrifying Monster in the House movies. And the truth of the matter is, this monster in the house is probably one of the least on the surface scary monsters in the house ever. What makes him scary is actually the reversal of his weakness. And what makes him scary is the way that this director uses images rather than dialogue to build fear. From that very first image of him dragging the girl down the street, we can already feel the horror of this man. And what's beautiful about him is that kind of weird balance between understanding how vulnerable he is in the world and understanding the motivations for his actions without a single word. The posture, the gait, 
the performance of Stephen Lang in that role and the silence with which he stalks them, barely saying a word in the entire movie. Kind of like the fin in Jaws, what we don't hear is sometimes scarier than what we do. Similarly, Rocky is a really beautifully drawn character. She's a character who's doing really bad things for really good reasons. A character who is not perfect, who has impulse control issues, who can be selfish, who can be manipulative, but who in her heart is good, doing something really, really bad. They are victimizing a blind man. They are stealing the last thing remaining to a guy whose daughter was viciously killed, who's lost his eyesight, a veteran of the Iraq war. I mean, they are victimizing one of the people who least deserves to be victimized. And there's a wonderful ironic turn in turning the victim into the monster. That is really the heart of what makes this movie great. If you've seen the movie, you probably felt at the end that there's something just a little bit dissatisfying about it. Even though it's great, there's something just a little bit off emotionally. And one of the things that leads it to be a little bit off emotionally is that that theme kind of gets let go of. Unfortunately, the thing that undercuts that theme is probably one of the coolest things in the movie is that moment where we realize that he's holding this woman hostage. Because that's the movie where he turns into pure horror. Where he turns into pure evil rather than complicated good. What was interesting about this film for the first half of the movie was the way that good and evil were all mixed together in this dilapidated world of a dying Detroit. And that doesn't mean that I believe the film should have cut the hostage girl, but it does mean that I would have liked to feel some degree of moral uncertainty about whose side I should be on. I would like to feel some degree of not that this poor innocent woman accidentally killed his daughter. Some feeling that she is as, as morally compromised or as morally responsible as he is. Some feeling that, the, that we're not in a black and white world but in a shade of gray one. Similarly, we keep on seeing that bag and we keep on seeing the structure of Rocky making a choice about is she going to take the money or is she going to do the right thing? And we see her again and again and again, take the money, take the money, take the money. And we feel like we're building to a moment where she's going to leave the money behind. But of course, we never get to that moment. She ends up taking the money and she ends up getting rewarded. And I think that can also work in this morally complex world. But the value of the money, what the money means in the morality of this world never becomes entirely clear. Thematically, the movie kind of bounces between its kind of indie thematic roots and it's kind of big budget black and white thinking. And if there's one way that I'd want to push Don't Breathe a little further, I'd want to say, how do you do all this big budget horror stuff without letting go of the theme, without letting go of the morality tale that is underneath it? So there are ways that this movie can be improved. But that said, this movie is a really great example of how to take some very limited props how to take a turkey baster and turn it into a horror item. How to take a square room with a bunch of pillows and turn it into a trailer piece. How to take a dilapidated house, a dilapidated street, a dilapidated car, a dilapidated basement, and turn these really low-budget elements into brilliant independent filmmaking. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. 
As I mentioned, we make this podcast totally free with no outside advertising. So if you enjoyed it, please subscribe on iTunes and write us a review. You can also get a complete transcript of this podcast on our website, writeyourscreenplay.com. And if you'd like to study with me in New York City, online, on one of our international retreats, or as part of our one-on-one ProTrack mentorship program, you can learn more on our website as well. That's writeyourscreenplay.com.